This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. After weeks of deliberation, Chris Murphy, who is the Democrat leading gun control talks with Republicans, has announced that they've reached a bipartisan agreement. Shockingly enough. Now, is it underwhelming? Yes. But is it something? Sure. And a lot of people are currently of the mentality that something is better than nothing. Anything is better than inaction. But there's also an argument to be made that if they don't even do the bare minimum, that also could be harmful because what is the goal here? Is it to pass something to say that they did something or is it to actually curtail the number of mass shootings in this country? And if the latter is your goal, which it should be, then you actually have to produce meaningful legislation because if you pass something and gun deaths keep happening at a very alarming rate, then all of this was for nothing. But to me, if I could be a little bit more cynical here for a moment, it just kind of feels like they're trying to do something to placate people who want to see action when this really reasonably isn't going to curtail gun violence. But let's talk about what's in it and what's the good. As NBC News reports, a centerpiece of the Senate deal is to provide substantial resources for states to implement red flag laws, which allow individuals like police or family members to petition courts to keep firearms away from people deemed a risk to themselves or others. Currently, 19 states and the District of Columbia have red flag laws on the books. The new provisions are aimed at increasing that number and improving their implementation the agreement also establishes a more rigorous process for background checks on people between 18 and 21 years old with an enhanced review that includes contacting state and local law enforcement for criminal records that could be disqualifying and to appropriate state organizations for mental health information that could affect the decision. The proposal also seeks to clarify ambiguities over who must register as a federally licensed firearm dealer for the purposes of conducting background checks. Now, red flag laws, to be clear, that's a genuinely surprising thing. I didn't really expect them to agree on that, which is why my cynical mind believes that's probably going to be cut from this framework when it actually does become legislation. But let's talk about what's not in the bill, things that are conspicuously absent here. As Hill Kapoor tweets out, no ban on semi-automatic weapons, no ban on high-capacity magazines, no 21 minimum age to buy AR-15 style rifles, and no universal background checks. Yeah. So when 80 to 90% of the country, depending on the poll, says we want universal background checks and they don't even do that, I can't help but feel skeptical here. If they just passed universal background checks, I think that that would probably be one of the biggest things that they can do. If they're not going to ban AR-15s, if they're not going to ban high-capacity magazines, background checks, that could really be an important thing in conjunction with red flag laws because some people who shouldn't own weapons don't have criminal records. They're young men, as we've seen, right? So the red flag laws will work with the federal background checks, that's really important. But they're not doing universal background checks. 
they're doing expanded background checks for people between the ages of 18 and 21. Except you shouldn't be allowed to buy a weapon at all until you're 21. So the fact that you're expanding background checks really feels kind of stupid, right? If you're not going to expand background checks for everyone when that's what the country wants, if you're not going to raise the age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21 and you're only going to expand background checks, then that just seems dumb. Now, I understand the sentiment in the country currently. They want something to be done, anything to be done, right? And that pressure is why they're currently acting. But here's where this could be an issue, right? Let's say that this gets passed and it is very, very milquetoast reform and gun violence keeps happening, which it will. Well, what's going to be the message from Republicans? It's not the gun, see? We passed gun control legislation. We had this bipartisan effort. We passed it and we did everything that the Democrats wanted, but yet gun violence is still happening. See, we were right. We need to do door reform. We need more prayer in schools. That's what they're going to say. And their argument will be more compelling because they can claim they've taken action. They can point to this legislation. But if they pass this inadequate legislation and gun violence continues to happen, then that's just going to be all the more reason to not do gun control that actually works in the future because they can point to this as evidence that gun control doesn't work. Do you understand? So this is why I'm really a mixed bag on this. I'm not saying that they shouldn't pass this because they have to do something and the red flag laws, assuming it remains in this bill, could really make a meaningful difference. But at the same time, if it's not good enough, it's just not good enough. We have to admit that. We can't just pretend as if this is sufficient when it very, very clearly is inadequate. And even as milk toast as what they've come up with in this framework is, look at the Republicans who decided to actually support this. John Cornyn, safe through 2026. Tillis, safe through 2026. Cassidy, Collins, Graham, all safe through 2026. Blunt, Burr, Portman, Toomey, retiring soon. Mitt Romney, safe through 2024. In other words, not a single Republican who's up for a re-election this year is supporting this goes to show you how big of cowards these republicans are and even the ones who are safe through 2026 after the next presidential election they're like this is all i can do okay i, I can't support universal background checks which 80 percent of the country wants but we can expand background checks for 18 19 and 20 year olds it's truly ridiculous i mean they're corrupt they're taking money from gun manufacturers, interest groups, and this is why they won't do it. Specifically because any real action is going to cut into profits of these gun manufacturers. They don't want to do that. This is them delivering for their donors. So they come up with this milk toast thing and they say, we did it. Applaud us when, no, I'm not going to applaud you for doing the bare minimum when you quite literally didn't even do the bare minimum. The bare minimum to me would be universal background checks for everyone. I don't care if you're 18, 21. If you want to buy a gun, you have to undergo a background check, a federal background check. If you can't even do that, you don't get to brag because it's just, I mean, come on. Do you want to curtail gun violence or do you not? If you don't do background checks, then that to me is almost a non-starter. I'm not saying that if I were in Congress, I would vote against this definitively. 
but there's got to be more pressure, right? The pressure is very clearly working, hence the reason why there's some action. They're at least pretending to deliberate on some sort of bipartisan framework, even though they should have voted like weeks ago. It's not that hard. You know what we want and what you need to do. But I mean, again, I just worry that they're going to use this as evidence that they took action. And very clearly, gun control isn't the answer because gun violence is still happening. So, you know, Democrats, they've got to try to thread that needle, produce something because they have an incentive to get things done before the midterms as well. Republicans want to get voters off their backs. So you have these spineless politicians coming together to not even agree on the bare minimum. And we're supposed to applaud them. I just can't. I can't applaud you for this. This isn't good enough. Come back to me with a real proposal. Come back to me with red flag laws still there and universal background checks. And then maybe I'll say, all right, you know what? That's the compromise position. But when you come to me with this and you can't even support something that the overwhelming majority of the country wants, including gun owners, we just, we can't accept this. We shouldn't accept this. It's just not good enough. So this is only the beginning. I hope that Democrats continue to fight. But unfortunately, Democrats don't know how to fight. So if Republicans just say, I guess the only thing we're willing to support is expanded background checks for 18, 19 and 20 year olds, Democrats would go along with it just so they, too, can say we passed something. But if the goal is to curtail gun violence, this simply isn't good enough. I'm sorry, but that's true. It's not just about tolerance for people who live different lifestyles. It's not just about tolerance for people who have different emotional or sexual orientations. It's not about any of that. It's about celebration. The entire society must celebrate. Not only must the entire society celebrate, the entire society must propagandize on behalf of this sort of activity. So for example, I mean, this is insane. Postmates is a company that delivers things to you, right? You order food via Postmates. That was my impression. I was not aware that Postmates was actually a BDSM site teaching you about anal sex, but apparently that is what Postmates is now. So Postmates, in honor of Pride Month, put out a video and a tweet essentially telling people what to eat. I've been informed by my producers that this is what this commercial is about because frankly, I found it somewhat puzzling. Apparently this is about what kinds of food you ought to eat so as not to have messy diarrhea before you engage in anal sex. This is being promoted by Postmates. Postmates was bought by Uber in a $2.65 billion all-stock deal back in 2020. This is an enormous American company. And it is propagandizing on behalf of anal sex in its marketing. It's a food company. It's a food delivery company. Here is what this, this looks like. Ben Shapiro is a dirty booty bottom confirmed. <laughs> Wet ass. First dry P word, now dirty booty. Damn, Ben. I, I just, I don't know. I don't understand you. Um, okay, obviously, that was conservative commentator Ben Shapiro reacting to a Postmates video where they describe proper hygiene for queer people. Um, I don't know how to tell this to Ben and all the other conservatives who are reacting to this right now, but you're just not the target demographic. You don't have to watch this, right? If you choose to not click on that video that Postmates shared, which is very obvious from the beginning, this is not for straight people. I mean, maybe some straight people will find this informative. In fact, I know some straight people will. But if you see that and you just scroll on by, it's okay. It doesn't make you intolerant. You don't have to know about this. It's not for you, right? But uh, they're trying to push this as 
well, you have to watch this and love it. Otherwise, you're a bigot. Nobody's saying this. Nobody's actually saying this. If you go to Twitter, which I do not recommend that you do this, and you go to the Postmates account and you click on all of the quote tweets for this video, uh, which I'll play a clip for it if you're curious. We're not going to watch all of it, but um, conservatives are just melting down over this. And again, I've got to just stress this really very clearly isn't for you. You're not the targeted demographic, right? It's an interesting, bold choice from Postmates because usually these companies during Pride will simply change their logos to a rainbow and then be done with it. But Postmates is kind of going above and beyond and arguably too far. Uh, and, and that's me saying this, right? But I'll share my thoughts on this. I just want to address some things that Ben Shapiro said. So he claims uh, it's not just about tolerance for people who live different lifestyles. Now you have to embrace things like this. Except, no, nobody's asking you to embrace this, right? Nobody's asking you to learn every intricate detail about homosexuality or trans people. Like, you don't have to learn this to be tolerant, right? Being tolerant means that you just accept that people exist even if you don't necessarily agree with their, quote, lifestyle, which it's not a lifestyle. If you're gay, that's who you are. It's inextricably linked to your identity, right? But tolerance means, you know, even if you don't like gay people, you acknowledge that they should be entitled to equal legal rights, equal social equality. They should be free from bigotry. But Ben Shapiro does not maintain this tolerant stance. He quite literally is, by definition, intolerant. Over the weekend, uh, Fox News put out a segment where they talked about a trans family with a trans child, and he melted down, as did a lot of conservatives. And what are we seeing from conservatives across the country? This effort to ban trans people out of existence, ban gender-affirming care for children. Matt Walsh, who just released a propaganda piece, an anti-trans propaganda piece, admitted that adults shouldn't be able to transition as well. So, I mean, you're not tolerant. You are quite literally intolerant. If you're actually going to practice tolerance, you acknowledge that there are different people from you and you just let them live, live and let live. But that's not Ben Shapiro. So for him to say this, it's a downright lie, okay? So he also says, the entire society must celebrate, the entire society must propagandize on behalf of this sort of activity. No, that's not what they're asking you to do in this video. Nobody is saying, hey, you're a bigot if you don't celebrate homosexual sex. Nobody's saying that at all. I've never heard a gay person make this claim. Again, I want to emphasize, this was not a video for most straight people. It's not a video for conservatives. It's just a video for gay people. It's, it's marketing, right? It's certainly unorthodox marketing. I haven't seen an ad like this targeted for gay people by a non-gay company, but it's not for you. And that's okay. You can, you can choose to turn away. If you seek out, you know, all of these, uh, queer centric things, then sure, it's going to be foreign to you, but you, you don't have to learn about gay sex to be an ally. This reminds me of the scene from The Office where they all found out that a coworker, Oscar, was gay, and then they started to watch gay porn so they could learn about homosexuality. That's not, that's not what tolerance is, but they're almost like, they're taking it to that parody level where they have to watch this. And it's like, oh my God, look at what they're making me watch. You don't have to watch this, I promise you. You can turn away, it doesn't make you a bigot. Now, as for the ad itself, um, it's not really an ad, it kind of is, but, I'll show you a small clip, just the 30-second clip. Um, basically, the way that I feel about this is 
I kind of feel mixed. Um, I admittedly kind of had this like visceral response like, oh, why are they doing this? And, and perhaps that's internalized homophobia that I still haven't dealt with myself yet. Um, but part of me just thinks, man, they're putting this out and it's just bait for conservatives. We're going to hear about this now for a month. There are better ways to be an ally, right? That's my initial thought. But then as I thought through this, it's like, actually, this is a resource that's kind of a necessity because we live in a heteronormative society and queer people aren't taught sex ed. So I think that good hygiene, uh, learning about sex, safe sex, things like this, it's necessary for gay people. And certainly I don't really feel comfortable with multinational corporations or large corporations filling that void, you know, uh, but at the same time, it, it's, it's still important. And, you know, it's, it's explicit, right? But, I mean, is it more in your face than heterosexuality? No, because we see straight sex everywhere. So it's not like queer people are required to hide sex away from the straights to protect their fifis because that's also pretty fucked up and that kind of contributes to this heteronormative society, right? Uh, but, I mean, straight sex is everywhere, even where it shouldn't be. Uh, I watched the Halo show on Paramount+, Plus. big fan of the games, and Master Chief in this game, the main character, was never in a relationship, but yet they found some way to make him get laid in this show, straight sex. It's like, goddamn, this shit is in my fucking face. I'm having the opposite, you know, Ben Shapiro reaction, where it's like, this is what they want us to tolerate, you know, raise my high-pitched voice and start talking faster. No, but I mean, like, you see straight sex everywhere. So, I mean, if you see, you know, gay sex uh, once in a while talked about in this way, I just don't know what to say. If you don't want to see it, you don't you don't have to watch it. But for those who do want to see it, who are curious, here's the snippet of the advertisement. If you want to even call it an ad, but this is what Postmates put out. Soluble fibers and protein are the key to having some good, clean fun. These all digest easily and slowly while feeding your good gut bacteria which makes sushi a great bottom-friendly option. There's no right or wrong way to bottom, but if you're planning on getting peachy this pride, the bottom-friendly menu on Postmates has the kinds of foods that can keep you feeling good. Are you organic? Mm -hmm. Look, I just wish that I could see Ben Shapiro's face as he's watching this. Apparently he watched it on the program. This was a clip shared by uh, Jason Campbell. So I don't know if he watched it. If he did like a second by second replay as he did with WAP, I'm gonna find it and I'm gonna react to that. Uh, but you know, it, it let's let's go to the um, explanation here for this. This is by Out. Today, popular food delivery app Postmates is announcing its first ever bottom-friendly menu in partnership with restaurants such as H2O Sushi and Izakaya, Prince Street Pizza, Dialogue Cafe, Beatnik, and others. This campaign will mostly focus on restaurants located in Los Angeles and New York City. This fun initiative in the Postmates app was conceptualized by a team of LGBTQ plus employees within the company. Moreover, the food delivery service is making a donation to the Okra Project, which is a mutual aid collective that provides meals and support to black, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. So overall, that's good. If this is, you know, going to lead to, you know, donations, great. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where if you are a straight person, um, I promise you, this doesn't make you a bigot. You're not a bad ally if you don't watch things like this. You're not the target demographic. But unfortunately, we live in the society where, you know, 
conservatives will try to find examples of bad gay people. They'll find examples of like gay people being, you know, overly promiscuous or twerking or something like that. And, you know, to put this out, I, I think that conservatives will use this for their bigoted agenda, but reactionaries will always do that. They'll say, see, gays are just about sex and promiscuous and that's their whole existence. But that's going to happen regardless. The fact is that these types of resources should exist. Should it come from corporations? No, don't really feel comfortable with that. Um, they should be available for gay people if they need them. But, you know, if you are a straight person and this comes across your timeline and you don't want to watch it, just look away. I mean, if you're curious, fine. But you don't you don't have to watch this is what I really just want to stress. Once again, conservatives, you don't have to watch this. I mean, if you're trying to find reasons to be outraged or disgusted. I mean, there's no shortage on the Internet, but if you're going to watch this, then I've just got to warn you. If you don't like gay people, you're not going to like this. And I kind of feel like that should be obvious. But we're in this time where conservatives are trying to find every single outrage bait that they can use to gin up homophobia. And I, I worry that this is going to do just that. Um, so, yeah, again, kind of feel mixed about this video that Postmates put out itself just because I know the way that conservatives will use this. But at the same time, you know, just don't watch it. I mean, Jesus Christ, is it really that difficult? At the first public hearing on the January 6th insurrection on Thursday, Liz Cheney announced that multiple members of Congress sought a presidential pardon from Donald Trump. Now, this is an absolute bombshell because if these members of Congress are going to the president for a pardon, then obviously they believe that they broke the law and were at risk of being prosecuted for it. So uh, I think that the public has a right to know who. And so Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took to Twitter to pretty bluntly ask which one of you asked for a presidential pardon. So in response to Lauren Boebert's tweet, which reads, 1984 called and they want their bleak, immoral, thuggish, and deadly totalitarian dystopian future back. AOC asks, hey, quick question, Boebert. Did you ask for a pardon after tweeting the speaker's location on January 6th? You and the KKK caucus have been really quiet about it today. And given how much y'all have to say, I'm not sure why no one's responding to this simple question. She then tags Marjorie Greene asking the same thing. Maybe your friend Marjorie Greene can answer. Did either of you seek a pardon? Just trying to clear some things up. Now, when it comes to Matt Gates, she asks, hey, Matt Gates, while I have you responding to my tweets, can you respond to one more for me? Did you ever ask Trump for a pardon? Let me know in the replies. You clearly know where the button is. Now, for context, she was engaging with Matt Gates because she called him out and he responded. Basically, she quote tweeted a video from Patriot Takes where they shared Matt Gates and Marjorie Greene having a conversation, probably on their podcast or something, because of course every member of Congress has a podcast. But he was talking about Jamie Raskin, who's a member of the January 6th committee. And he claimed that Jamie Raskin was unable to be a participant here because he's too distraught from his son's death. I mean, to use his son's death against him and suggest that he's not qualified to participate in this is truly just 
gross, but it's the low that you'd expect members of the GOP to stoop to. So AOC took to Twitter to respond and defend Raskin, saying, Representative Raskin is a greater statesman, congressman, human being than most of us. History will remember him. Tommy was a remarkable person and testament of his parents' love. Gates is a bad haircut in a cheap suit, a feat of mediocrity given that he's here on Papa's money. Bye. Now, that was very brutal. So Matt Gates responded saying, one, a lot of people like my hair. I don't believe that's true. Two, my suits are cheap, not sorry. And three, stop trying to date me. I'm married. Now, I've got to share Lance from the Surf's response with you, who came in with the death blow ratio saying, even her political career might be too old for you, dude. <laughs> God damn. Lance has no chill. That was just incredible. Now, the reason why I'm sharing these back and forths with you is not to pump your head full of useless melodrama from Congress people, but to demonstrate how all of a sudden Matt Gates just stopped replying. Now, this is really interesting because usually members of Congress like this, Marjorie Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, the three idiots in Congress, they go out of their way to instigate Twitter drama with AOC members of the squad so they can maybe, I don't know, brag about it, do it for clout, fundraise off of it. Either way, they're constantly trying to pick fights with AOC on Twitter. But all of a sudden, Matt Gates goes from engaging with AOC to going conspicuously silent. Marjorie Greene, who always responds to every single thing AOC says, didn't respond here. Now, Lauren Boebert unwisely decided to respond to AOC's question, but as you're going to see, she avoided that question like the plague, saying, Okay, Sandy, $5 a gallon gas, 3 plus million illegals crossing our southern border, no baby formula, inflation higher than it's been in both of our lifetimes, and this is what you want to talk about? Your policies are failing America, and you're going to lose the House come November. In other words, yes, I did ask Donald Trump for a pardon. That is a superfluous way of saying, yes. Just admit it. And I love how she tries to pivot to policy substance as if she cares. Lauren, you voted against increasing funding to address the baby formula shortage. You voted against capping the prices of gas. Maybe your husband being a consultant for the fossil fuel industry has something to do with that. I'm sure that he's really happy about the high gas prices. So don't pretend as if you care about the working people. Stop LARPing as a populist. You don't give a fuck about these things. And if you actually did care about policy, you would propose one. I don't know that she actually knows what policy is. But, I mean, this is what they do. They deflect, they obfuscate, and they gaslight. But their silence here is deafening. Their answers here, that non-answer that Lauren Boebert gave, it's pretty sus, if you ask me. Now, in an interview with Dana Bash on CNN, Dana had asked Representative AOC whether or not she believes that they did ask for a pardon. Um, take a look at what she had to say in response. Vice Chair Liz Cheney revealed that multiple Republican members of Congress, Congress asked for presidential pardons after January 6th. You went on Twitter and directly asked Republican Congressman Gates Bobert and Green, if they were the ones who asked for pardons, do you have a reason to believe that they were? Well, we do know that Congresswoman Lauren Bobert, in the middle of all of that footage that we saw yesterday of people kind of coming into the Capitol, was actively tweeting the speaker's location, was tweeting evocative, you know, really provocative statements like this is 17, today is 1776. And it very much, I believe, indicates a side here. And when you don't know which of your colleagues were part of a potential conspiracy, 
then we need to find out. And frankly, from a lot of the behavior that we have seen both in committee, inside uh, the workings of the House, I believe that every member of Congress should be able to answer that question. I'm happy to answer this question. I know that uh, Representative Jerry Connolly, Representative Shelley Pingree, we are more than willing to offer that we did not seek a pardon uh, from the White House either before or after January 6th or frankly at any point in time. And I believe that it's a very simple question that every single member of Congress should be able to answer. Well, people like Scott Perry, are, they're denying it. You just don't believe them? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we'll see what uh, the evidence that the committee lays out uh, will be. But if the committee, as indicated, has evidence that several members of Congress did seek a pardon, you do have Representative uh, Perry refusing to comply with a bipartisan investigation into the events of January 6th. You know, I, I believe that the committee would never make an allegation so serious without very substantial evidence to, to present to the American public. Yeah, she's exactly right. And to be clear, to emphasize this point, because it's very important, you don't seek a pardon unless you reasonably believe that you broke the law. And where there's smoke, there's fire. We know that this was going to be the case. In fact, in October of 2021, Rolling Stone published an article explaining that insurrectionists claimed to have coordinated with multiple members of Congress. And yes, they named names. Quote, I remember Marjorie Taylor Greene specifically, the organizer says. I remember talking to probably close to a dozen other members at one point or another or their staffs. Along with Greene, the conspiratorial pro-Trump Republican from Georgia who took office earlier this year, the pair both say the members who participated in these conversations or had top staffers join included Representative Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Madison Cawthorn, Andy Biggs, and Representative Louis Gohmert. We would talk to Boebert's team, Cawthorn's team, Gosar's team, like back to back to back to back, says the organizer. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if the members of Congress who quite literally coordinated with members who planned the insurrection asked Donald Trump for a pardon. Very, very interesting. Now, unfortunately, we live in a society where we have a two-tier justice system where if you're a powerful elite, if you're wealthy, you don't get held accountable. So there was actually a lawsuit to keep Marjorie Greene off the ballot since she not only broke the law but violated the Constitution by participating in an insurrection. But she was cleared by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger of Georgia. So, you know, these Congress members are lucky because they're not going to see a day in jail at all. Like, I would be shocked if anyone was prosecuted, including Donald Trump. But if you're not going to prosecute these individuals, which I don't believe is going to happen, then at a minimum, the lowest expectation is that we should know who asked for a pardon. Because that tells you that they know they broke the law. So, yeah, I'm glad that AOC is putting pressure on them. I want all members of Congress to do this, exert so much pressure on them that this is all they hear about. Every time the member of media asks them a question, it should be, have you answered directly as to whether or not you sought a pardon from President Trump? Like, you have to keep the pressure on them because you see right here, they try to deflect. They try to change the conversation, but that doesn't change the fact that we know that these insurrectionists broke the law and they know that they broke the law as much as they want to pretend as if January 6th wasn't a big deal. I heard your talk on gun control. So I'll ask you a question. Do you have the guts to go down to the people in Texas whose kids were killed? 
the kids in high, the high school in Florida, and the ones that say, you're going to tell them to their faces that their request for gun control on certain things and everything else is wrong and that they're leftists? Have you got the guts to tell them to their faces that what they're feeling is wrong and you're right? Of course, I would be honored to speak to them and tell them they're wrong. Honored. It would be, it would be one of the highlights of my life to talk to these grieving people and tell them that their reactions, though completely understandable, will do nothing to prevent other kids and other parents from the same suffering. It would be my honor to Florida? speak to them. Florida and Texas. That is correct. You, well, why don't you do that, Dennis? Why don't because you go they're not going to come to my talk, okay? Let's live in reality. I, I, would, I hereby announce to everyone listening in Florida and Texas, it would be my honor. I would humbly go before grieving parents and tell them that the issue in America is values, not guns. Would you call them lefties? No. I would call, okay. the, I would call the idea, if they asked me, do you think that the concentration on guns rather than evil is a left-wing idea, I would say that has been the left's view since Vladimir Lenin. That was conservative Dennis Prager of PragerU, not a real university, by the way, confirming what we already knew, that conservatives are incredibly heartless. They are so cruel. He would actually debate the family of a victim from Uvalde and explain to them why they're wrong. It's not guns that killed their children. It's um, values or a lack thereof. It's evil. I mean, this is why I have no respect for conservatives. This is why we don't take you seriously, because you're not living in reality with us. One side wants to have a good faith conversation about policy, whereas you want to talk about abstract things. You want to talk about a lack of God in schools. You want to talk about this intangible, subjective thing like evil. Okay, let's let's assume for a second that you're right and you definitively prove to us that it is evil that is causing all of these kids to die in schools and not guns. How do you regulate evil? How do you ban evil? How do you address that with legislation? Because we're trying to talk about policy, Dennis, but you're talking about some made up bullshit. You're putting feelings over facts. How do you address that? People like that are not serious actors, but yet this is one of the most influential propagandists in the country. I've seen my normie friends share PragerU videos. This is the person who's educating people, having an influence on people's policy ideals? Isn't that horrifying to everyone? No, it's not the guns. It's evil. Yeah, you're evil, buddy. But unfortunately, I'm not able to quantify that. Actually, maybe you can quantify that if you add up all of the dead children that you think are the result of um, not guns. It's just, it's, it's frustrating. Because anytime there is a policy issue, they don't want to talk about policy. So Dennis Prager can talk about his feelings and abstract concepts, but let's talk about some facts. NPR writes, Columbine High School, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook Elementary, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, all are names seared into the nation's memory for the terrible violence that took the lives of students there. But the dangers young people face from firearms in America go well beyond school shootings, which account for only a fraction of all gun-related deaths, whether it's the gun violence they face in their neighborhoods, or suicide, or accidents at home when guns are left unsecured, the threat to the nation's children and teenagers is not only bad, but worsening. 
For decades, car crashes were the leading cause of death for Americans ages 1 to 19, but the gap between car crash deaths and firearm deaths began to steadily narrow in recent years. In 2020, gun violence overtook car accidents to become the number one cause of death for U.S. children and adolescents. Researchers at the University of Michigan found that while firearm-related deaths overall increased 13.5% between 2019 and 2020 among children and adolescents, they surged a staggering 30%. So gun violence is now the leading cause of death among adolescents, surging, statistically increasing every single year. But Dennis Prager just admitted that he would gaslight the parents of gun violence and say, guns didn't kill your child, it was evil. I mean, again, how do you have genuine good faith policy discussions with these people when all they want to do is distract? And we know why he's distracting. We know why he's obfuscating and gaslighting. It's because he cares about the profits of gun manufacturers. Maybe they contribute to PragerU. They certainly buy off politicians. So I'm not sure how much they're putting into propaganda, but it's certainly a lot, I'd imagine. But, you know, in the event we do gun regulations, how does that impact the gun industry? Well, it dips into their profits. If you raise the uh, legal age to purchase firearms from 18 to 21, well, that cuts out on how many people can buy guns. That's obviously less money. If you do universal background checks, that might weed out some of the bad actors, and then that cuts into their profits. It's all about money. It is quite literally profits over people, which is why I say capitalists are a death cult. Like, this man is literally admitting to you that he cares more about profits than people. And he's not saying this explicitly. He's implicitly telling you this. Because anyone who claims with a straight face that it's not guns, it's evil, is fucking stupid. Like, if I were being overly charitable, I'd say, okay, if you claim that evil people are using guns to kill people, sure. But the problem is that that's such a useless conversation because, again, evil is not something that you can legislate away or regulate. But guns, however, you can. So if you genuinely believe it's evil then make sure that we don't put guns into the hands of evil. But again, this isn't a conversation that he wants to have because he doesn't want to do anything that might hurt the profits of these precious gun manufacturers, which is why he would allow these children to continue to get slaughtered. He'd confront the parents, debate them of Uvalde, and just tell them, nope, you're wrong. I mean... This is not necessarily an anomaly, right? I wish I could say that Dennis Prager is a very bizarre conservative, and many conservatives aren't like him, but this is pretty representative of most of the conservative uh, conservative population in America. They've all been brainwashed. It's a death cult. We just have to ignore them, defeat them where we can electorally, and legislate without them, because that's what you get when you try to include, you know, uh, conservatives in these adult conversations. You get fucking stupidity like that. It's interesting to hear Senator Graham speak, because other than the partisan rhetoric, what you don't hear him talking about are, in fact, the most important issues facing this country. That's what the establishment does. And Lindsay is a very good and effective representative of the establishment. Does Lindsay have the concern that we are the only major country on Earth not to guarantee health care to all people? That some 60,000 people a year die? because I don't get to a doctor on time. I didn't, I didn't hear much about that in that opening statement. Lindsay care that we have the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs 
and that the pharmaceutical industry right now has 1,500 paid lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to make sure that in some cases we pay 10 times more for the medicine that we need? Did Lindsay talk about the fact that we have in South Carolina and all over this country tens of millions of workers working for starvation wages? Did he talk about a corrupt political system in which billionaires today can start a super PAC? And I guess you have some familiarity with super PACs. They help fund your campaign. Who can spend unlimited amounts of money to elect candidates. You have the absurd situation where super PACs frequently spend more money than the candidates themselves. I didn't hear Lindsay talk about the crisis of climate change or the reality that scientists are telling us, not Bernie Sanders, Lindsay, this is what the best scientists in the world are telling us. We don't get our act together. The planet we're going to be leaving our kids and future generations will become increasingly uninhabitable. Talking about great cities like Charleston, South Carolina, you're aware of that. Neighborhoods flooding. There are people who are thinking that not only Charleston, but Miami, New York City, will be half underwater by the end of the century. You got to talk about that. You got to talk about income and wealth inequality. Do you have a concern that two people own more wealth than the bottom 42%? Do you have a concern in terms of corporate concentration of ownership? You got three Wall Street firms now, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, who control $20 trillion in assets. They control hundreds and hundreds of corporations throughout this country. Bottom line is we are moving toward oligarchy. And if we don't stand up and say that we need a government that represents working people and the middle class, I worry very much about the future of this country. And I hope you'll speak to some of those issues. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. That was my favorite clip from the Fox Nation debate featuring Senator Bernie Sanders and Lindsey Graham, courtesy of Case Study QB, who's the only account that actually posted clips of this debate online. I feel like it should be available for all of us if we want to watch this, since this features United States senators, but you can't find it anywhere. So I'll link to it down below if you want to watch the full debate, which I'd highly recommend. Once again, thank you to Case Study QB for making these clips available. But one thing that you'll notice if you watch the full debate is that Bernie Sanders will bring up problems and then respond by saying, I'd fix said problem with this policy. 60,000 people are dying every single year. The cost of healthcare in America is double the cost of Canada's. Here's what I do. Medicare for all. And this is a consistent theme. Bernie Sanders speaks only in policy. This is his language. Whereas Lindsey Graham, all he does is deflect and obfuscate. But luckily for Lindsey Graham, Democrats are in power right now, and when things go wrong, the party in power is to blame. So consistently, Lindsey Graham brought up the cost of gas prices, inflation. And yes, it is the case that inflation is a global phenomenon currently, and gas prices are indeed high. But what you'll notice is that Lindsey Graham never cites a single policy prescription. He says, yes, gas prices are high but that's because of democrats okay we can we can accept that argument what specifically would you do from a legislation standpoint to address these things and lindsey graham 
has nothing because he's not offering any policies. He's just saying things are bad, blame Democrats. Now, unfortunately for Lindsey Graham, that strategy is actually a solid strategy because Americans aren't going to be able to connect the dots. Americans aren't going to be able to find the causal mechanisms of the problems that they're currently facing. So Lindsey Graham rightfully said, you know, if you're better today than you are, uh, than you were two years ago, then you must have been really bad back then because things are bad now. And he's correct about that. So the job of Bernie Sanders throughout this debate, in my opinion, was to connect the dots, explain specifically why things are going wrong and what policies are needed to address these things. But there's an issue with Bernie Sanders' argument here. And the issue is that he doesn't explicitly condemn Joe Biden and Democrats. So that sets up this situation where Lindsey Graham can say, well, Bernie Sanders is proposing all of these solutions, but yet his party is in power and we're not getting these solutions. It must be because these socialist solutions don't work and they know that they don't work. So they're selling you a bag of bullshit. And it's hard to counter that if you're not actually going to say, I disagree with Joe Biden. I, Bernie Sanders, a democratic socialist, reject the neoliberalism within the Democratic Party. I do caucus with them, but I reject overall their economic philosophy. They don't represent what I'm saying. But Bernie doesn't necessarily do that, so it's really difficult to communicate to voters why he's right and why Lindsey Graham is wrong, because Lindsey Graham is saying, you're in power and they're not doing what you want. I understand why Democrats aren't doing what Bernie Sanders wants, because they're corrupt. I mean, Bernie Sanders touched on it, but he has to draw a direct line from point A to point B and make these distinctions very clear. And unfortunately, he doesn't do that. But still, overall, I, I think that just when you contrast him and Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham is very transparently trying to distract people. And I think that voters are smart enough to acknowledge that Lindsey Graham doesn't really want to talk about policies. He tap dances around it. And whenever he does address specific policies, it doesn't go well for him. Case in point. And you know what the American people do want? They do want Medicare for all. You talk about the joys and beauties of private insurance. Talk to the millions of workers who lost their private insurance during COVID. So I think it is time for the working families of this country to stand up, demand a government represents all, not just the few. So I'm calling on Senator Schumer to bring Medicare for all to the floor of the Senate sooner rather than later so we can vote on it. Because if the American people want it and those people who vote against it should lose their job, that's the way it works. So in terms of your proposal for Medicare for all, I am challenging you and your party who run the Senate to blame it, bring it to the floor for a vote. And we'll see where the votes are. Now let's go back to gas prices. And that is what he did throughout the entire debate deflect, distract, and pivot back to gas prices. And strategically speaking, I think that that is going to be effective because this is something that all Americans are talking about. They're all talking about it. It's affecting everyone in a very concrete way. So it's hard to listen to what he's saying and dismiss it, even if he doesn't have a real solution, right? And Bernie Sanders tries to explain with facts why gas prices are high. You know, it's it's corporate greed. That's a part of the issue. You know, these fossil fuel companies, they're making record profits and they're doing stock buybacks, but yet they're claiming that they have to raise the cost of gas. 
And so this is bullshit. But, you know, Lindsey Graham will respond by saying, actually, no, that's not it. The reason why these fossil fuel companies have to raise the cost is, you know, despite all of these subsidies that we're giving to them, uh, they just can't drill. Biden wants to ban fossil fuels. So because they're unable to drill more, well, you know, supply goes down, demand goes up, and the cost is increased subsequently as a result. Now, Lindsey Graham couldn't actually tell you what he would do to lower the cost of gas prices aside from just letting them drill everywhere and destroy our planet. Apparently, that's the only way that you can bring down the cost of gasoline. But there are alternative solutions to do that. You can actually cap the cost of gasolines, ban stock buybacks. You can nationalize fossil fuel companies so that way they can't rip off Americans, make it a public utility. But he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to do that. And, you know, whenever he talks about policies, you know, to, to rebut what Bernie Sanders says about Medicare for all, for example, as you saw, he says, oh, well, you say that Americans want Medicare for all. OK, well, let's vote on Medicare for all in the Senate. You know, in theory, these senators are representative of the population. So if the Americans want Medicare for all, then senators will give it to them. I mean, what an imbecilic way to describe the United States legislative system. The Senate does not represent the American people, and that's the fucking problem. People like Lindsey Graham are functionally representatives of the industries that fund their campaigns. So why should we expect shills who take bribes, legal bribes in the form of campaign contributions from these industries to do what the American people want when there's that conflict of interest? The answer is we can't do that. So the problem and really the challenge for Bernie Sanders is disaggregating himself and his solutions from the broader Democratic Party. And I don't think that he was sufficiently doing that. And so he even, you know, took a swipe at Lindsey Graham for beating up on President Biden because, you know, you blame the party in power if things go wrong. That's what Lindsey Graham was doing. It's a really savvy political uh, tactic. And Lindsey Graham was doing the easiest thing. He doesn't have to talk about policies right now. He just has to say, look at how bad Democrats are doing. And so it was really incumbent on Bernie Sanders to say, these solutions that I'm proposing are not supported by Democrats because of money and politics, because of corruption, because of this neoliberalism that have take, that has taken hold in the Democratic Party. Neoliberalism, let me remind you, was a thing that Republicans embraced. But as of the 90s, you know, with uh, Bill Clinton, neoliberalism became a Democratic Party thing. And a lot of folks think that neoliberal just means, oh, somebody who's really liberal or it's just a Democrat thing. No, neoliberalism is an economic philosophy where you exclusively propose private solutions to public problems. So rather than increasing government funding for education to lower the costs, well, you privatize education. You know, you invest in voucher programs so people can take that money and give it to a private company so they can profit off of it. This is the crux of neoliberalism. And Bernie has to explain why the neoliberal policies of the Democratic Party it is in conflict with what he is selling. And the problem is that I don't think that he sufficiently does that. And because Bernie Sanders refuses to do that and refuses to criticize the Democratic Party, you know, that is a flaw in his argumentation, which Lindsey Graham was able to exploit. And he did. Case in point. I want to remind you again that your government is run by Democrats. Now, that doesn't mean that we've got all the answers Republicans, but I find this astonishing that the people in charge of your government are not going to vote on things that Bernie thinks will fix the problem. Why? Because they don't want to vote on these ideas.
because they won't fix the problem. So here, here's the point. If you want things to change, you got to get new people into Washington to run the place. Because the answer to America's problems, Senator Sanders, is not more socialism. Your own message, what time is it? It's time to raise taxes on the rich. Your completely own message. Why do we have such a problem at the border, Senator Sanders? Is because policy matters. Two million people will come across this country illegally. Only God knows how many we will miss. It's a complete accident waiting to happen down there. We went from having a secure border, having Mexico work with us. We changed our laws so we could have control, and it's all gone away. Folks, if you don't change who's running Washington, the worst is yet to come when it comes to illegal immigration. Gas prices. So right on cue, he deflects and, you know, starts fear-mongering about immigrants. Lindsay, what would you do other than uh, implementing more fascism to solve the immigration problem in this country? Are you or your party proposing comprehensive immigration reform? No, it's just be really, really cruel and that will dissuade people from coming, except that hasn't worked. Being cruel is not a policy fix. What is a policy fix is immigration reform. And because, in my opinion, we destroyed these Latin American countries and exploited them, I think that these people from Latin America and Mexico, they're not just entitled to residency here, they're entitled to citizenship. If we fuck up their countries, we break their countries and their forms of government, we have to fix it. We have to at least right that wrong. So letting them come here is important. And he tries to fear monger as if they're this terrorist threat. I'm sorry, Lindsey Graham, I'm not afraid of immigrants. The people who I'm afraid of look like you. It's these people. They're the ones who are doing terrorism in the United States. The white supremacists that your party continues to embolden. So that's where Lindsey Graham goes wrong, right? Because you can't try to gin up fear about immigrants when this is a more abstract threat. People don't see immigrants barging into their homes as Lindsey Graham wants them to believe will happen at any moment, but they can feel the gas prices increase. They can see the impact of inflation on their wallets. So, you know, Lindsey Graham, he's going to win over the people who are already predisposed to be xenophobic bigots. But where he's persuasive, I think, is when he says that Democrats are in charge. And therefore, if they wanted to fix these problems, they could, but they're not doing that. Now, Bernie Sanders, it's hard to disagree with anything that he says because everything that he says is factually correct. But again, I've got to point out that Bernie Sanders absolutely must explain the differences between him and Joe Biden. And if Bernie Sanders said, yes, these are my policy solutions, here's why uh, Biden has failed as a president. Biden is not strong enough. He's not exerting pressure on people in his own party who's obstructing his agenda. Biden, you know, and the Democratic Party keeps coming up with excuses. Oh, the filibuster, the parliamentarian, and that's not very persuasive to people. So because Biden has failed in that regard, because he's not strong enough, the American people will look at Lindsey Graham, and when he says, are things getting better? They're gonna say, no, of course not. They're not, it must be because Biden is failing. So that's why Bernie Sanders can't allow him and the Democratic Party's left flank to get lumped in with the failures of the Democratic Party. This is why contrasting, comparing, 
and, you know, explaining why their failures is essential. But Bernie Sanders does not do that. And I understand why he doesn't want to do that. He probably wants to try to maintain this relationship with Joe Biden and try to get some things done. But that ship has sailed, Bernie. The ship has failed. Uh, Biden has failed. The ship has sailed, more specifically. And you're not going to get shit done with Joe Biden. He has decided that he is not going to meet this moment. He's not going to do anything to actually legitimately fix these problems. And you know that, but you have to say it because if you don't say it, then Americans will just come away with thinking, man, Bernie Sanders, he's making a lot of sense, but at the same time, why aren't the Democrats doing what Bernie Sanders wants when they're in power? People don't know about this. If you talk to a normie Democrat, they assume that all Democrats support Medicare for all. They assume that, you know, every single Democrat is progressive. And maybe there's some anomalies here and there like Manchin and Cinema, but but by and large, Democrats are good. This is what normie Democrats think. But you have to bring them over from the normie Democrat side to the leftist position. Because the normie Democrat side, the average Democrat, is as conservative as a Reagan Republican. Right. So as much as the uh, Republican Party continues to shift to the right, the modern day Democratic Party like Joe Biden has filled the conservative void left behind by Republicans. So they're de facto the conservative party, whereas Republicans are now a far right extremist death cult who poses a threat to democracy. So if Bernie Sanders just allows Lindsey Graham to, you know, lump Bernie with Biden and Bernie's not making these contrasts, then unfortunately, I don't think that the messaging when it comes to policy will land, right? So the last thing that I want to share with you is this clip where Bernie Sanders does a really important job of calling out the extremism within the Republican Party and how they now pose a threat to democracy itself. Watch this slimy tactic that... Um, Lindsey Graham will use here. It's it's the same tactic he's using. Deflect. In fact, he's going to project a little and claim that this is what Democrats do to project, hyper-focusing on Donald Trump. But overall, he ignores a core issue that even, you know, endangers himself as somebody who isn't going along with what Trump says anymore as much as he's licking Trump's boots. But just take a look. I think many leading political scientists will tell you that right now we're looking for the first time in my lifetime and yours at a real threat to the existence of democracy in America. And you know why? Because we have a former president, whose name is Donald Trump, who goes around the country telling people, hey, I won the election. In fact, I probably won it by a landslide, but they, they stole it, they took it away from me. All right, now that happens to be what we call a big lie. And yet many of the Republicans that Senator Graham are asking you to vote for, are maintaining that big lie. What does that mean? It goes beyond Trump, it goes beyond the 2020 election. It means what they are saying is the entire system, you can't trust anybody. And if you can't trust the election results, then what is the obvious alternative? We need a strong man, all right? Conservatives want to, I think was hungry to meet with Mr. Orban who runs an authoritarian type society. So the struggle we're facing is not just that Lindsay and I disagree on this or that issue, which we do. It is the future of American democracy and when we, whether we move to authoritarianism based on, among other things, a very big 
lie. Well, quickly, Guess can you what? address that, Senator? Trump lost the election. Can you address that, Senator? I mean, can you say definitively the election was not stolen? Yeah, I, I voted to certify the election. There were some mail-in balloting shenan uh, chicanery out there, but no, no, I voted to certify the election. Pres president Biden's the president. And whether Did he Trump win the election? Yeah. Okay. Now, what about all of the candidates out there who are trying to say that he did? Your Republican candidates that you want people well, to vote for? Well, I, you know, what about the people saying defund the police? You talk to them, I'll talk to that crowd. Well, your so crowd here, is a lot larger <laughs> than my crowd. So here's the point. Why is he talking about Trump? Because he can't talk about anything else. <laughs> he can't tell you rationally why there's no end to gas prices. It's always somebody else. It's the oil companies. It's the drug companies. These policies are not working center centers. Whether you like President Trump or not, he secured our border. Raining in fossil fuel companies won't work, Lindsey Graham says, as if that's a policy that's been implemented at all. This is why Bernie Sanders absolutely must, and all leftists who are in Congress, must disaggregate themselves from the neoliberal corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Because Joe Biden is getting attacked for something he did not implement. He's getting credit for things that he says he supports but doesn't fight for. If Biden actually did rein in the fossil fuel industry, the pharmaceutical industry, that would have a tangible impact, a concrete impact on the lives of the American people. But he hasn't done that. But, you know, um, his inaction is being used in a way that's that's so disingenuous because Lindsey Graham is saying, well, you wanted to rein in fossil fuel companies and you did. And now gas prices are high. Therefore, these socialist policies don't work and Americans don't have anything to go off of because perhaps they just assume build back better past because Biden is in charge. So it's it's really important. I, I cannot stress this, this enough. I know that this is redundant, but I want to make this very clear. Progressive Democrats have to explain why corporate Democrats are failures when it comes to policies. But overall, I don't want to be too down on Bernie Sanders because it's really important that the American voters understand that this focus on the 2020 election is not a mere distraction. The Washington Post reports about a third of the way through the 2022 primaries, voters have nominated scores of Republican candidates for state and federal office who say the 2020 election was rigged, according to a new analysis by the Washington Post. So this by far is one of the most important issues of this era in politics. It's not a distraction because all of these disagreements on policy make no difference if we lose what's left of our democracy, if Americans don't have the capability of choosing leaders. Yes, these leaders are shills, they're corrupt, they're beholden to special interests, but if we at least have the ability to choose them, then the potential for change, even if it's minimal, is still there. But once we lose that capability, that's when all of our, our power is gone. It's already difficult enough to affect change when you have shills like Lindsey Graham who get elected and just do the bidding of their corporate donors. But when we also lose the ability to choose leaders, and you can already argue that we don't have the ability to choose who we want because there's so much money in politics and we just can't compete with multinational corporations. But either way, if we have the situation where Republicans are so authoritarian that they are paving the way for a dictatorship with Donald Trump or some other fascist at the head, that's when all hope is officially dead in this country. So these policy debates are important, but at the end of the day, they don't matter if they're not happening in good faith. They don't matter if shills like Lindsey Graham are effectively representatives for these industries that fund his campaigns. So this is why the country is doomed because we're not having a good faith conversation here. 
right? This is a debate between somebody who cares, Bernie Sanders, and somebody who is a shill for a multitude of industries. Literally, he is a shill. He gets money from them, right? So why would he represent the American people when the American people and what they want and desires in conflict with what this, uh, these industries that fund him want? So that's why these debates are, you know, so important. I feel like the American people have already been won over to the progressive side. When you look at these various polls and go issue by issue, Americans agree with the left. The problem is that there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of opportunity for deflection and obfuscation because they don't understand specifically why these things that they want aren't, aren't getting accomplished, right? which is why they kind of go back and forth. They elect Democrats, and then they stay home when they're disappointed. Then Republicans get elected, but then they come back out to elect Democrats. It's just this fucking pendulum that goes back and forth. And so what we have to do is explain it to the American people. Connect the dots. Explain both parties are failing. Both parties are failing. That's an undeniable fact. Both parties are not equal. One of them is a threat to democracy. Another is incompetent. Explain specifically what kinds of people have to be elected in order to solve the crises that this country faces. And that specifically is progressive Democrats. The country is progressive and that's who we need to elect. Not all Democrats are the same. And certainly not all Republicans are the same, but those dis distinctions are getting a lot more um, blurred as we saw with Lindsey Graham, who didn't really want to talk about how the Republican Party is increasingly becoming more and more authoritarian. So this was an entertaining debate. I would encourage you to watch all of it. But those were just the moments that stood out to me. I think that Bernie Sanders ultimately won this debate. But in terms of Bernie Sanders' performance, it was imperfect. And until Bernie Sanders can really draw these distinctions between himself and Democrats, I just don't think that the American people are going to understand. And you've got to understand. You've got to understand why Things are the way that they are, and Americans have some sense of what's going wrong, but it's it's very blurry, and Bernie's job is to bring that into focus for them, and until he does that by saying Democrats are failing because of the money in politics, then arguments that Lindsey Graham uses, like, oh, well, look at the gas prices, that's going to land with them because they feel that right now. They feel it. So until they truly have a concrete understanding of the way that this country functions, we'll be in this predicament in perpetuity. So last week, if you watched my coverage that I posted on Thursday of the January 6th Select Committee's first public hearing about the insurrection, you know that I was incredibly adamant about the fact that Donald Trump must be prosecuted because if you present us with this evidence of his various crimes, if you present us with evidence that he is the one that caused this insurrection and it all amounts to nothing after you've elevated the salience of this, then that communicates to the American people that elites will just never be held accountable regardless of how brazen they are. And worse, it communicates to elites that they will never be held accountable regardless of how brazen they are. And the reason why that's a problem, particularly in this case, is because if elites know that they can literally try to kill democracy and never be held accountable, well, they're going to do it again. Now, the January 6th committee, once they conclude their investigation, which isn't finished yet, to be clear, they can't prosecute Trump themselves. But what they can do is recommend that the Department of Justice prosecute Donald Trump file criminal charge, uh, charges against him and other high-ranking officials that were 
co-conspirators with Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election. But we are now getting mixed messages about whether or not they will do that. And this is a very, very huge problem because we're at a turning point. We have two options. We can either try to save what's left of our democracy by prosecuting the criminals like Donald Trump, who tried to kill democracy and steal an election, literally, or we can choose to let it go and then let these people run for office and then stay in power in perpetuity because they know that nothing will be done regardless of how shameless they are in breaking the law and trying to kill democracy. So let's take a look at this article from NBC News because this is a really worrying sign. They write, the chair of the House Committee investigating the Capitol riot said Monday night that the panel will not make any criminal referrals even though its leaders have previously hinted at the possibility of doing so. Quote, our job is to look at the facts and circumstances around January 6th, what caused it, and make recommendations after that, Chair Benny Thompson told reporters as he left the House chamber after the second day of public hearings by the panel. When pressed on the matter and whether the committee had ruled out the possibility of referring criminal charges, particularly for former President Donald Trump, Thompson replied, we don't have authority. But the committee's vice chair, Liz Cheney, suggested later on Monday that a decision was not yet final. The committee has not issued a conclusion regarding potential criminal referrals. We will announce a decision on that at an appropriate time, she said in a statement on Twitter. Representative Elaine Luria tweeted in a separate statement that the committee has yet to vote on recommending criminal referrals. If the criminal activity occurred, it is our responsibility to report that activity to the Department of Justice, she said. Representative Adam Schiff, one of three California Democrats on the committee, also weighed in during a CNN interview Monday when asked about Thompson's remarks, saying, We haven't had a discussion about that, so I don't know that the committee has reached a position on whether we make a referral or what the referrals might be. I thought we were deferring that decision until we concluded our investigation. This is a very, very worrying sign because you have multiple members of the select committee saying different things. On one hand, you have Benny Thompson, the chair, saying, we just don't have that authority. And then you have others like Liz Cheney, the vice chair, saying, no, we haven't made up our minds yet. And then you have others like Adam Schiff saying, oh, well, I thought we were going to make this decision later. Folks. I need you to understand that you've all got to get on the same fucking page here. This is no laughing matter. Take this seriously. And that's not to say that I think that they are incompetent. I think they did a phenomenal job at presenting that evidence. I gave Liz Cheney credit, which was painful to do if you saw my video. I don't want to give her credit for anything, but I think that she did a good job here. I think that this committee has exert, you know, exerted a level of competence that I didn't expect, honestly, because my expectations were very low. But this right here is awful. It's a horrible sign. You have to get on the same page. If you haven't made a decision yet, you all have to say collectively, we'll withhold an announcement until we've concluded our investigation. Otherwise, don't respond to questions like this. Don't respond to questions like this. So what are Republicans going to say in the event they do conclude that there should be a recommendation for criminal charges? Oh, well, I thought that the chair said that you don't have that authority, so you shouldn't recommend this if you don't have that authority. It's the mixed messages are a huge, huge problem. Now, ultimately, they don't have the authority to file charges to prosecute Donald Trump, but they absolutely have the authority to recommend the DOJ take action. And if you just present all of this evidence of criminality and you don't make an explicit recommendation and you leave it up to Merrick Garland's coward ass, fuck all will be done. Nothing will be done. Do you understand why this is a problem? 
So when Obama took office, he chose to move forward, not prosecute the crimes of George W. Bush. And we know what happened. War crimes continued by the U.S. government. Obama did it himself. So if Biden comes in and refuses to prosecute the last administration after they try to literally stage a coup, guess what's going to happen? It'll happen again. Everyone is watching right now. Everyone is watching. And the question we're all asking ourselves is, are we going to have a democracy going forward or are we going to allow the people who staged a coup to get back in power? And it seems as if the latter is the more likely possibility. Not that I'm shocked by that, but the fact that the chair is saying we don't have that authority to make a recommendation, then what's the point of all of this? You're just broadcasting to us what's going to happen to us in a couple of years. Now, also, because they're sending mixed messages, they're feeding into narratives like this, espoused by Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson, who tweeted, the witch hunt committee announced they won't be making any criminal referrals, not one, just like the Russia collusion lie. The whole thing was another Democrat hoax. They knew they had nothing, but dragged it out anyways. A total waste of time and taxpayer dollars. Now, he's lying. What he's saying is factually incorrect. There is a plethora of potential crimes that were committed. So if you tell us what they did, the crimes that they committed, including the crimes that Donald Trump committed, and you don't recommend charges, that narrative is going to be the prevailing narrative. And they're, it's not like they're doing a bad job. I don't want to say that the select committee on January 6th is failing because they're very clearly doing a good job. As MSNBC's Cal Griffin reports, a morning consult poll shows that 63% of Americans believe DOJ should bring legal action against elected officials who misled Americans about the outcome of an election. 67% believe DOJ should bring legal action against elected officials who attempted to overturn the results of an election. Now, I understand that prosecuting the former president is no small thing. It's huge, right? But if you don't hold them accountable, and you don't have the guts, the spy needed to hold them accountable, then step down. Merrick Garland has been a complete disaster as an attorney general because time after time, he doesn't just let former Trump officials go, but he continues Trump's legal legacy, defending the indefensible, just keeping the status quo as is. So if you're not going to do anything in that position, and do your fucking job, quite frankly, then you need to step down. Biden needs to fire him. Because after we see evidence, after every American sees evidence that Trump literally committed a crime in trying to stage a coup and steal democracy, and he's just going to be allowed to run again, nothing matters. Elites can get away with everything. And Trump has already remade the Republican Party in his image. The Washington Post reports about a third of the way through the 2022 primaries, voters have nominated scores of Republican candidates for state and federal office who say the 2020 election was rigged, according to a new analysis by the Washington Post. Now, as you can see, these are Republicans at the federal and state level who can work in tandem to steal an election if it doesn't go their way. Attorneys general in certain states can reject their state's certifications of elections. And then members of Congress who are newly elected can reject the certification of the next presidential election. We're headed for a disaster scenario where out in the open, Americans can elect a new president and that president doesn't take power because we have a bunch of Republicans who are willing to steal that election away from the American people. I don't think people in power understand how serious this moment is, or if they do understand, they're just too afraid 
to do what's needed to prevent this from happening. Prosecuting President Donald Trump is going to be a disaster for Democrats. Absolutely. Because when the next president, who's a Republican, comes to power, they're going to try to open any, you know, dumb investigations into Democrats for everything. But either you believe in protecting democracy and you're willing to do that because it's necessary or you don't and you're too big of a coward. If that's the case, you've got to step down. So, look, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen. We don't know if they're going to make recommendations because we're getting mixed messages. They should recommend charges for Donald Trump. But ultimately, this is going to come to um, Merrick Garland and what he chooses to do. And if they don't nudge him in the right direction, he's not going to act because he is a fucking useless coward. So understand, this is a pivotal moment in American history. And we're either going to maintain what's left of our democracy or we're going to let these authoritarians steal it away from us. This will come down to what people in power do right now while they still have power. If they do not prosecute Donald Trump and the criminals who created this situation, democracy is done in the United States. They claim to have evidence that they don't have. If they have evidence, it's evidence that the Capitol Police have. And I can tell you they don't have evidence because what they're claiming never happened. That was Representative Barry Loudermilk denying allegations that he did anything wrong when it comes to the tour that he gave a Capitol insurrectionist one day before the Capitol insurrection. And he's been so vehement about his innocence that some of his colleagues have not only defended him, but demanded apologies on his behalf. Now, in a segment on Laura Ingram's program on Fox News, him and Laura, they're both going to smugly declare that they've been proven right. And for some reason, mainstream media, lamestream media, they just keep lying and they keep saying that he's guilty when he very clearly has been vindicated by a Capitol Police officer who says actually what he did not that big of a deal. Take a look. And for over a year, Democrats suggested that congressional Republicans had led groups of visitors on so-called recon missions on the Capitol on January 5th, 2021. Remember that? Now, the implication was obvious that Republicans, elected officials, were in on the plot. They were insurrectionists themselves. Yes. Well, the smears all began just one week after January 6th. I was really shocked when I got into the, the House office building and saw these groups inside. There would be no tours allowed, even tours given by members. And so the only reason you'd have a visitor is on official business. So to see these groups around the Capitol complex was really striking. Okay, that Mikey Sherrill needs to be thrown out of office. New Jersey, save yourselves. The charge then gained momentum around one particular congressman, George's Barry Loudermilk. What we're learning about Loudermilk is that he was part of a direct lie uh, to the public and perhaps to the committee. I think Loudermilk will probably take the Fifth Amendment. I mean, this guy's pants look like they're on fire. This is amount to a seditious conspiracy. Um, is this the kind of thing that might warrant the consideration of expulsion from the House of Representatives? Can always count on Charlie Psycho. Well, these comments were disgusting even before what we learned tonight. Louder milk, we find out, did nothing wrong. In a letter to House Administration Committee ranking member Rodney Davis, Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger wrote that officers had reviewed security footage and found no evidence that Louder Milk entered the Capitol with the group of constituents at all. But even after Louder Milk was exonerated, oh wait, he wasn't. 
He asked the Capitol Police to look into it. They did release a letter by from the uh, pol police chief, Tom Manger, that said that there was no evidence that Loudermilk was giving a tour of the Capitol building itself, but it didn't necessarily absolve him of any wrongdoing. Oh, my God. This is odious. Here now is the aforementioned Congressman Barry Loudermilk. Congressman, first of all, your reaction to the developments tonight, and you're cleared, but CNN says, oh, not so fast. Well, Laura, thanks for having me on, and and thanks for actually covering this. You know, just a, uh, three or four weeks ago, I find out about these accusations, not from a letter that the committee sent to me. No, they sent it to the press as I'm going to the airport, and then I'm seeing my picture on the television screens of all these passengers that are seeing that I'm some kind of strange conspiracy uh, or, or evil conspirator here. And it's just ridiculous that the way that they're handling this committee, and they keep moving the goalpost. You know, the original charge was we gave tours of the Capitol. There were no tours of the Capitol that day. Mm, I love it so much. I love the confidence there because um, today the January 6th committee tweeted out surveillance footage shows a tour led by Loudermilk to areas in the House office buildings as well as the entrances to Capitol tunnels. Individuals on the tour photographed recorded areas not typically of interest to tourists, hallways, staircases and security checkpoints. And this is the video. It has begun here at the Washington Monument, Washington, D.C. Say hello to Facebook. Hey, what's going on, man? Glad this to be a, here, bro. This is our fearless leader. Hey, baby. Check out my flag I made, guys. See it? There you go, baby. <laughs> that's for a certain person. That's right. That's for somebody, somebody special. Somebody special. <laughs> We are basically at the Capitol with probably close to two million true American patriots. They are swarming and converging mainly from Constitution Avenue, but from all routes in. There's no escape, Pelosi, Schumer. Nadler, we're coming for you. We're coming in like white on rice for Pelosi, Nadler, Schumer, even you, AOC. We're coming to take you out. We'll pull you out by your hairs. How about that, Pelosi? Go. Might as well make yourself another appointment. I'll get done with you. You're gonna need a shine up on top of that bald head. And for those listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we're now watching footage of Representative Barry Loudermilk take this violent insurrectionist on a tour one day before the Capitol insurrection.
Mm. Seems like a nothing burger to me. The insurrectionist who filmed himself saying, we're coming to take you out, pull you out by your hairs, who you gave a tour to. No big deal. You were vindicated. Now, the reason why he believes that he's vindicated and why he and Laura Ingram were so smug and confident is because, as HuffPost explains, the Capitol Police said this week that the group's behavior in the Capitol complex did not raise security concerns, really. At no time did the group appear in any tunnels that would have led them to the U.S. Capitol. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger wrote in a letter to Representative Rodney Davis, the top Republican on the House Administration Committee. There is no evidence that Representative Loudermilk entered the U.S. Capitol with this group on January 5th, 2021, Manger wrote. We train our officers on being alert for people conducting surveillance or reconnaissance, and we do not consider any of the activities we observed as suspicious. Like other House Republicans, Loudermilk has refused to cooperate with the January 6th committee. He said the Capitol Police letter essentially cleared him of wrongdoing because he never gave a tour of the Capitol itself, just the House office buildings. Yeah, so it seems like the Capitol Police officer who supposedly vindicated Loudermilk is full of shit and probably stupid as well. You watch for people who are casing the place, doing reconnaissance. I mean, he was taking pictures of a fucking staircase. He said that they're going to go in there and they're going to pull out people like AOC by their hair, but yet you claim that he wasn't with them. And yet that's evidence that he was vindicated. I mean, am I going crazy? Are we supposed to honestly believe that this dude who was threatening violence and was there on January 5th, was just taking photographs of the stairs because like he's an aficionado of stairs. I, I mean, come the fuck on. We're adults here. Stop pretending that we're fucking stupid. You're lying to us. And as Representative Brandon Doyle wrote via Twitter, this is the stairwell I take to my office. In my eight years here, I have never seen a tourist taking a picture of it. Yeah, yeah. No suspicious activity, though. He's been vindicated. Mm, the video says otherwise. Now, listen, he could prove all of us wrong. Loudermilk could prove everyone wrong by going on the record and testifying before the January 6th committee. But he refuses to do that. He's so confident that he's right and that he did nothing wrong, didn't aid and abet these insurrectionists, but yet he refuses to cooperate, refuses to go on the record. Why won't you go on the record? Is it because you're afraid that you're going to perjure yourself because evidence proves that you gave an insurrectionist a tour? And in response to that video, can you guess what he did? He doubled down yet again, saying via Twitter, the Capitol Police already put this false accusation to bed, yet the committee is undermining the Capitol Police and doubling down on their smear campaign, releasing so-called evidence of a tour of the House office buildings, which I have already publicly addressed. Okay, then testify under oath. You're very confident. You seem really, really confident that you did nothing wrong. Testify. Won't do that, right? Now, look, if he was smart and not a big fucking idiot, what he would do is say, all right, look, yes, I gave this person a tour. I did think it was a little bit weird that they were photographing stairwells. Yes, that was bizarre to me. But at the time, I hadn't connected the dots. I didn't know that this individual was threatening violence and would then be rioting the next day at this Capitol. So I feel bad that I unwittingly 
perhaps assisted him in this process, but I absolutely unequivocally denounced the actions of that day. He's not saying that. He's not giving us a reasonable explanation. He's just saying, nope, not suspicious at all. I gave this person who literally rioted in this building the day before the Capitol insurrection a tour, and yeah, he was being really sketched, taking photographs of fucking stairs, but yet I did nothing wrong. And I won't testify. I won't go on oath. I mean, Jesus Christ, when we're dealing with dishonest actors who are this shameless and brazen about their disregard for the truth and facts, how are we supposed to move forward as a society? I mean, if there would have been some sort of uh, great awakening of the GOP, it would have come after January 6th, which is when they realized, oh my God, this has come too far. Our lies about the election have gone too far. This is what we've catalyzed with our rhetoric. But they won't do that. And even if they participated, they still, uh, you know, th there's video footage and they're still saying, nope, you're wrong. I'm right. You're on video, man. What do you want? What else do you want? I mean, when they deny video footage, they're telling you that it's raining as they piss on your legs. They're just shamelessly lying to you. And you're just supposed to accept that this is a smear campaign. I mean, these people are fucking shameless. So does anyone remember how proponents of Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, back when it was still being discussed, claimed that this wasn't about anti-LGBTQ plus hate, they simply didn't want gender and sexual ideology being taught to children. Now, people like me pushed back at the time and explained how you're creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist because sex and gender ideology is not being taught to children in elementary schools. So this is nothing more, this was nothing more than a thinly veiled ploy to hide away gay people. If you can basically pretend as if gay people don't exist and protect your child from learning about the existence of queer people, then perhaps they'll not be gay or trans themselves because it definitely works that way. Now, what do these homophobes and transphobes say? How dare you claim that we would be so bigoted and be that intolerant? Of course, we think that gay people should be able to be their authentic selves. We don't want to push them back into the closet. Again, this is just about us making decisions as parents as to what we want our children to learn about. I think a lot of people are saying, no, I just don't want you grooming my kids for whatever your ideology is. Mm, except... Now they're basically just admitting what we told you they wanted to do all along. This is about erasing gay people out of existence. They don't want gay people to be visible at all. And they're admitting this. For example, one proponent of the Don't Say Gay Bill, Ben Shapiro, well, this is what outraged him over the weekend. He tweeted out, Disney works to push a not at all secret agenda and seeks to add queerness to its programming, according to executive producer Latoya Ravenu. Parents should keep that in mind before deciding whether to take their kids to see Lightyear, which hits theaters this week. He adds, children are not adults. What may be appropriate for adults is not appropriate for children. That this must be said demonstrates that our society is in a state of more collapse. Interesting. Now notice in that photograph that he shared from the movie Lightyear, it features a photograph of lesbians, lesbian parents smiling at each other. Ben Shapiro is claiming that that is not appropriate for children. And yet they are tolerant and they don't want to erase gay people from existence? I mean, does Ben Shapiro think that those two lesbians are going to start fucking each other in that same scene? What exactly is inappropriate about that? 
It is a presumably loving family just existing. But to him, that's outrageous. This has always been about erasing gay people out of existence. They don't want them to be visible. They don't want it to be known that gay people, that trans people exist because queer people do not fit into their idealized view of society. Now, in his Twitter photo, he's promoting the anti-trans propaganda documentary by one of his colleagues, Matt Walsh, who admitted that gender-affirming care should be illegal even for adults. Now, remember that at first, when it came to laws in Texas, they were banning gender-affirming care for children and investigating parents who sought out gender-affirming care for children because children just aren't old enough to make these decisions for themselves. So even if they have loving parents who actually seek out the advice of medical professionals, that's not acceptable. We cannot indoctrinate children. So we started there, and now we've arrived at, mm, actually, adults shouldn't be able to seek out gender-affirming care as well. But yet we're supposed to believe that they're tolerant. This is just about children. It starts in one way, and then the initial thing that they're pushing is simply a Trojan horse to do what they've always wanted to do, and that is eradicate queer people from existence. Now, over the weekend, 31 white supremacists were arrested in Idaho after they planned on rioting at a Pride event. Now, the subsequent conversation following this news was to deny. For example, Jimmy Dore posted a video not so subtly conspiracy-mongering about this thwarted white supremacist riot, citing a Joe Rogan video as evidence that a lot of white supremacist groups look like feds. It would have been mostly just disruption and trying to cause fear. You mean like this whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> Just like that, police found at least one smoke grenade. A smoke grenade. At least one. They call it a grenade. You mean well, a they also had a bunch of riot t-shirts on, so you have to think about that. That's a threat as well. And so they actually made arrests. So they said this is what they say. They say this guy among those arrested Saturday was Patriot Front leader and definitely not an infiltrator or co-opted by the FBI, Thomas Ryan Rousseau. It's all, it's all fishy to me. Here's the last time they did it. Remember the last time? Bystanders booed as the far-right Patriot Front staged a rally in Washington, D.C. to reclaim America. There they are. They're all dressed like in uniforms. They're all dressing in a lot. They're all, they have the big flags with them. They have their faces covered. Those guys, don't. they look like they have a purpose. That's not what I would think of a an out of a guy with no purpose would be a fat slob with a ripped dirty t-shirt on wearing sweatpants. That's what a guy with no purpose looks like. These MFers got purpose, baby. And I bet they I bet they even have a pension plan. <laughs> <laughs> Last time that happened, here's what Joe Rogan and Matt Taibbi said about it. Matt Taibbi who said he was going to call me never called me. You're, you're telling me the FBI is not monitoring fringe groups and they're, they, they were not aware these people were this fucking organized? Out of nowhere, they pop out with the same size flags and the same outfit on, goose-stepping. They're walking, not goose-stepping, but, you know, walking right. in, in this, at the same pace in, the, in a, a fucking orderly line. Like, who's, who organized this? This is them on their bus. I was trying to, I thought this was going to turn to the video of them walking. See the video of them walking. Is that the video well, of them walking? Like they're linking uh, to blog posts. It's not gonna God, there's got to be a video of them walking. I know. I've watched it. So, 
Here's it. Unformed, uniformed white nationalist group marches on Lincoln Memorial. CNN's all in. They're like, we're all in on this. Come on, show us. Look at these guys. Look at these guys. Where's the fat people? <laughs> How come they're all wearing the same clothes? Do that again. What the fuck is this? Is that, have you ever seen anything that looks more like feds? Tell me that doesn't look like feds. Right? It's like the 101st Airborne. Bro, look at this. These guys are all runners. These guys look like they just got out of buds. What we're seeing now is this massive gaslighting campaign by homophobes and transphobes. They foment hatred against queer people. And then when people take action, they either claim it was justified or, in the case of Jimmy Dore and Joe Rogan, deny that it happened altogether. This is not real. These are feds. Queer people are under no danger after we've been instigating hatred against them. I mean, even Ron DeSantis, who repopularized homophobia, pledged to not tolerate anti-LGBTQ hatred after starting a nationwide legislative movement to force queer people back into the closet. And now states across the country are copying that don't say gay legislation. And by the way, Ron DeSantis copied his don't say gay law from Viktor Orban, the dictator of Hungary, who got very popular and consolidated power by fomenting hatred against LGBTQ plus people. So every single time they try to push anti-LGBTQ plus uh, legislation or a policy of some sorts, they'll always try to cloak it in a legitimate concern. They'll claim this isn't actually about hate. This is about protecting children. This is about uh, parents having the choice to choose what our children learn. But that was never what this has been about. This has always been about erasing gay people from existence. They refuse to tolerate the existence of gay people. Hence why Ben Shapiro is outraged at a fucking cartoon that features lesbian moms. And the way that they get people to think that queer people are a threat is by playing the victims themselves. In fact, this is what Ben Shapiro said about how uh, queers are taking over society and culture. If you're somebody who believes, for example, that natural law suggests that there are better and worse ways on a human level of conducting, for example, your sex life. If you're a, you a person of traditional mores, mores, who believes that sex should be defined within marriage between a man and a woman, because sex is not merely about the physical pleasure that you get from sex. It is also about progeneration and creating a new generation of people and it's about the fulfillment that male and female find in one another when they leave their parents' home and they create a family for themselves. If you believe any of that stuff, then the number of institutions upon which you can rely has been shrinking dramatically. And not only has it been shrinking dramatically, it's been shrinking in almost forceful fashion from the cultural arbiters. If you believe any of this stuff, the idea is that you must be censored. And if you believe even the basic propositions that undergird this stuff, like there are natural differences between men and women, those distinctions are the basis for all mammalian reproduction forever. If you believe that sort of stuff, then you are considered a bigot. Yeah, you are. You are. You are a bigot. Just own it. That's who you are. If you don't want to be called a bigot, then stop being a fucking bigot, you bigot. So this is essentially the straight equivalent of white replacement theory. In order to justify the erasure of a marginalized community, you have to paint yourself as the victim. They want to censor us. We can't even use our religion as a justification to discriminate against LGBTQ plus people. I mean, this has been the playbook forever. Now let's go back to that photograph that Ben Shapiro was outraged about. 
He's not simply expressing the belief that marriage should be restricted to opposite sex couples. He is communicating to everyone that simply acknowledging gay people exist is an affront to his belief system. It's a basic lack of tolerance. This isn't a matter of agreeing to disagree. This is Ben Shapiro and homophobes and transphobes saying, I not only disagree, but I am going to fight, use my cultural hegemony to make sure that you are erased from society, that you are banned from transitioning, banned from marrying the person that you love. And currently, they can't do much to stop us from getting married, but in a couple of years, when the Supreme Court decides to revisit Obergfell v. Hodges, well, then they will ultimately win. This is kind of what they're doing. They're paving the way to society once again accepting that queer people, all queer people, should be denied equal rights. So when they try to tell you that hate against gay people isn't actually happening or that their hatred that they foment all the time is, you know, really just about a concern for children or when they tell you that they're allies and they're tolerant, it's just that you're not tolerant of their bigotry understand what they're doing and what their project has always been about. This is about erasing queer people from existence. And if you don't pay attention to it, if you accept their gaslighting, then you're complicit and you allow it to happen. So acknowledge what this has always been about. And whenever they come up with some sort of a bogus fucking excuse about, oh my God, think of the children, that's never been what this is about. They couldn't care less about children. They'll find a way to take this old argument and repackage it and make it more persuasive to normies. But you can't let them win and you have to acknowledge what this is about. They don't want gay people to exist. They don't want trans people to exist. And if they can erase queer people from society, then that is indeed what they want to do. We have evidence of that because they're trying it currently. First, they push us back into the closet. Then they start taking away our legal rights and what we've accomplished so far. Then they start banning trans people from expressing themselves through gender. They want to erase queer people. Wake up and acknowledge that this is what's happening and fight back. So I think it's evident that Dr. Oz is having a difficult time formulating a cohesive message in the race against his Democratic opponent, John Fetterman, and that's because it's painfully obvious that he has no message. He comes off as an out-of-touch, elite, bored celebrity who got busted peddling snake oil to the people who supported him before, and now he just is trying to do something to convince people that he cares, but it just seems like a vanity project and an opportunity for him to promote his brand. So he doesn't really have anything to offer to voters and he's struggling and that is uh, really funny to watch. Now, Twitter is not real life. I vehemently maintain that, but I can't help but think that him getting ratioed on Twitter constantly is evidence that the people just aren't picking up what he's putting down. They're not buying what he's selling, and rightfully so. And it almost seems like he tees up these attacks for John Fetterman. So, for example, he tweeted out, who do you trust to fix Pennsylvania? Hashtag Team Oz. Now, I just have to stop because, again, this is an individual who was grilled by Congress because he was selling pseudoscientific dietary supplements that he claimed were like miracle fat-burning products. It was just a complete scam. So I don't think that you should invoke trust because you're giving John Fetterman a million different attacks that he can use against you. But nonetheless, he did that. And people like myself reminded him that he's not trustworthy. 
And 22,000 people decided to chime in, making this probably one of the most brutal ratios that I've seen in quite some time. But here's what some people said. Parker Malloy writes, you're confusing senator with governor genius. Greg Rad says, I trust your opponent. John Fetterman. And this entire thread is basically people just ruthlessly shitting on him. This person says that they trust Dr. Pepper more than him. <laughs> Kyla says, we trust Fetterman, the guy who has actually lived here his entire life and served as a mayor for 13 years and lieutenant governor. And I mean, the dunking goes on and on. And just today, he tweeted out what could be mistaken as an endorsement for John Fetterman without the proper context, writing, John Fetterman is one of the most progressive candidates in the country. Yeah, let me explain to you why other Republicans, as dumb as they may be, are at least savvy enough to avoid calling someone a progressive and using that word as a pejorative. It's because even if Americans don't necessarily identify with the label progressive, by and large, they support progressive policies. So if you use progressive, that has positive connotations, right? So what you do instead to avoid that is you just resort to red scaring. You call him a commie, right? A dirty commie. That's what they did to Bernie Sanders. And that is more effective if you're trying to scare independents into supporting you. But he's saying he's one of the most progressive candidates in the country. Now, in that clip that he shared in that particular tweet, they compare him to Bernie Sanders. And let me remind you that Bernie Sanders has consistently been one of the most popular senators in America. No, he's been the most popular senator in America consistently every time that poll is conducted. But yet... They're going to deliberately and explicitly tie John Fetterman to the most popular senator in America. Take a look. Against a Bernie Sanders clone, and he even says it. Uh, tell us how this race will break down. We have a little over a minute. Well, real fast, this gentleman has endorsed Bernie Sanders, said they're the two most progressive candidates in the country, and it's a stark contrast from what I believe in. You know, he believes in spending trillions of more dollars on far-left agenda items. I believe in no more reckless spending. He believes that we should stifle in energy and innovation in America. I believe it's an all-of-the-above strategy. He believes uh, that we should release one-third of the prison population in Pennsylvania while we're in the middle of a crime wave in Philadelphia, and I believe that we should keep our streets safe. He believes in open borders and sanctuary cities. I believe uh, in a secure border. There's a big difference between two of us, but he's bankrolled a lot of money because my competition, they've all endorsed me, by the way, God bless him, gracefully done that, but he had no competition. So he's bankrolled a lot of money. So if you're worried about him and you should be, go to DrOz.com and chip in. We can take him down if we get the word out. Yeah. Now, to be clear, when he says, if you're worried about him, you should be, the translation is, I'm worried about him and he should be. He is openly calling for austerity, which will deliberately hurt the American people. Dr. Oz isn't saying let's tax the large multinational corporations. He's just saying, oh, well, John Fetterman supports reckless far left spending, except John Fetterman can easily dismantle that talking point by explaining what he supports, right? Universal pre-K, things that help Americans and fatten their wallets. So you can be vague. But if John Fetterman makes the case, that's going to land because people are struggling. And all you're saying is we shouldn't spend to help you. That's not going 
to help people. That's not going to land with people. Now, the reason why Dr. Oz is scared is because early polling indicates that John Fetterman will decisively beat him in November. As Max Greenwood of The Hill reports, Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman holds a nine-point lead over his Republican rival, celebrity physician Mehmet Oz, in the Pennsylvania Senate race, according to a new USA Today network, Suffolk University poll. The poll shows Fetterman with 46% support among likely voters in Pennsylvania, while Oz, whom former President Trump endorsed in April, comes in at 37%. Another 13% remain undecided in the race, with independents making up a plurality of those voters. The survey shows Fetterman with an early edge in one of the closest watched Senate races of the 2022 midterm election cycle and suggests that, at least for now, Democrats have a path to flipping the seat currently held by retiring Senator Pat Toomey. Yeah, so that right there is why Dr. Oz is scared, and he's making it very clear that he is afraid of his opponent, John Fetterman. But having said that, though, I would not say that this race, that John Fetterman's victory is a foregone conclusion, because... I mean, Dr. Oz is a particularly bad candidate, but Republicans nationally have a lot of momentum. And Dr. Oz, as bad as he is as a candidate, he could luckily get swept up in that momentum. So here's more from that same poll. The poll does show that Republicans have begun to coalesce around Oz as their nominee in the day since his chief primary rival, former hedge fund CEO David McCormick, conceded the GOP nod to Trump-backed doctor. 76% of Republican voters say they support Oz in the general election. Republican voters also appear more motivated than Democrats, with 73% of respondents who identified as GOP voters saying they are either extremely or very interested in the Senate race compared to 68% of Democrats. So I think it's a little bit too early to make any definitive statements or predictions about who's going to win. Dr. Oz could still win, um, but right now that's not the case, right? Things can change. A lot can happen between now and November, but it's hard to not think that Dr. Oz would be polling higher if he wasn't such a terrible, terrible candidate. But we'll just have to wait and see. But I'm going to enjoy watching him faceplant again and again until November because holy shit, this is one of the worst candidates I think I've seen in a very long time. So I've previously discussed MAGA world infighting on this show before, and there are certainly divisions that exist, uh, but I feel like it's not as prevalent. Like Chud infighting is not as common as some people want you to believe, but there are definitely irreconcilable differences that exist and they're only growing stronger. And that was really crystallized after I read an article from none other than Ann Coulter. Yes, that Ann Coulter, who is a far-right extremist. She is genuinely a crazy, unhinged individual, but as crazy as she may be, as much as I disagree with her, she is a very principled person. And when I say person, I mean fascist. So she is essentially now a giant anti-Trump Republican. Now, she started off as a Trump cultist herself. To an extent, she published a book titled In Trump We Trust with the subtitle E Pluribus Awesome, which is just so unbearably cringeworthy that it makes me feel pain. But regardless, you know, she kind of helped to boost Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, she turned on Donald Trump. And this is because she is a principled fascist and she just doesn't feel as if Trump was as fascistic as he promised he would be. So now she is an anti-Trump Republican. And because she doesn't like Donald Trump, well, she has the capacity to actually be a little bit more objective 
than her Republican peers, or if not objective, at least spitefully arrive at the correct conclusion, perhaps for the wrong reasons. But either way, she penned an article about Dinesh D'Souza's new propaganda documentary about the 2020 election titled 2000 Mules. And in this documentary, he supposedly provides us with definitive proof that Donald Trump was robbed. And he bases this on two claims. The first claim is that he has cell phone tracking data that suggests that Democrats were stuffing ballots. And the second claim is based off of an argument which is extremely stupid and flawed. Now, Ann Coulter is going to take both of these claims after watching the film, address them, and absolutely shred them. Now, I don't know if she's doing this for the wrong reasons. I don't know if she's doing this because, you know, there's some bad blood there between her and Dinesh D'Souza because, believe it or not, I actually found out that they used to date. Maybe she's a scorned lover. I'm not really sure, but either way, what she says here makes sense. So I'm not going to give her credit for being right and just having basic common sense. But what I will give her credit for is actually speaking out and condemning the people in Trump world who she believes are grifting off of Donald Trump's fame, which is a common phenomenon. So she writes, first, the movie doesn't show what it says it shows. Cell phone tracking isn't precise enough to distinguish between liberal activists, stuffing drop boxes and store owners, police officers, delivery men, and others who have perfectly legitimate reasons to be within a few yards of the same drop box every day. In all five battleground states, D'Souza considers it is perfectly legal for third parties to drop off ballots for others with varying degrees of lenience. Pennsylvania, for example, allows a grandparent, grandchild, uncle, aunt, niece, nephew, in-law, household member, caregiver, or jailer to drop off someone else's ballot. Even if every cell phone dot represented a left-wing organizer illegally dropping off another person's ballot, that still wouldn't make the ballot invalid. A legal ballot can be illegally delivered, although the guy who delivered it might be in trouble. These flaws have already been well aired elsewhere. So understand that she's taking the core claim in this film, the core evidence that the election was stolen, and she is easily, flawlessly dismantling it. And with a lot of these conspiracies, it's not that tough to dismantle it. You just have to think about it for a little bit, be somewhat intellectually curious, and you'll arrive at that conclusion if you have enough brain cells to rub together. And apparently Ann Coulter was able to put two and two together here. And she's right. D'Souza's claims, it, like I haven't seen the documentary, but if he's trying to use cell phone tracking data as evidence, just right off the bat, it, it's so bereft of any validity that even using it should discredit you just overall. And this is someone who's a hack. Like he's made so many documentaries before uh, about how the Democrats are evil and they're commies and they're demons, but it's always based off of conjecture, hyperbole, and fear-mongering. And he's doing the same thing here. So he's a one-trick pony. And really what's funny about this story is he is really frustrated that other propagandists haven't been promoting his conspiracy documentary. I believe he even called out Tucker Carlson for not bringing him on the show so we can talk about this film. But what he doesn't realize is that, you know, networks like Fox News, uh, Newsmax and whatnot, they've been dealing with lawsuits as a result of their lies because they are demonstrably false. So why would they jeopardize themselves legally just so you can promote your grifty film? 
it, it's just hilarious. So I love that the grifters are kind of turning on each other. So she also addresses this claim that it's impossible effectively for Trump to lose, according to Dinesh D'Souza, because just everyone loves him. She writes, the second problem, my problem with the movie is the idea that Trump's 2020 loss cries out for an explanation. We know for a fact that Trump was wildly popular, sailing to a landslide election on the love of a grateful nation. Only something nefarious could explain his defeat. Hello, Trump lost only one demographic in 2020 compared to 2016. What was that demographic? Answer, white men. How did liberal activists pull off that? In the five states where D'Souza deploys his hocus pocus cell phone data, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, Trump lost 8% of white voters compared to 2016. He lost 12% of white men. That's according to Trump's own pollster, the highly respected Tony Fabrizio, as well as everyone else who's looked at the 2020 election data. It was also predicted by anyone who supported Trump in 2016 and then watched him piss away his presidency for four years by betraying his base. I mean, you really have to be living in a bubble to think that because you like Trump, and because a lot of people like Trump, it's impossible for him to lose. I mean, contextualize the 2020 election. I assumed that Trump would win as well, but then COVID happened and then he mishandled it. And, you know, then Biden got lucky, essentially, and, and came to power. It was also an anti-Trump election. Uh, but I mean, like these election claims are so obviously fraudulent and hacky because there's been more than 100 GOP primary winners who pretend as if the election was stolen. One of them just won a position as the Secretary of State of Nevada and claimed that he wouldn't have certified the election back in 2020. But now that these people have won, they're they're saying, oh, well, yeah, we won and we're happy about that. Wait, hang on a second. That's that's the end of the story. You claim these elections were fraudulent, but yet you were able to successfully run a campaign and win. And then you're just that's it. We accept that. Explain why your election wasn't fraudulent. Did you win by like a greater margin than than you could have? Like you can't just say these elections are rigged and then when you fucking win, you're like, oh, I guess they're not rigged anymore. No, that's not okay. If you're going to say the election was stolen, it is incumbent on you to provide us with evidence. And nobody has been able to do that. Dozens of court cases have been thrown out. So the fact that Dinesh D'Souza is getting dismantled by other right-wingers is hilarious. Now, before liberals like Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel end up bringing on Ann Coulter and trying to rehabilitate her image because she's attacking Dinesh D'Souza and Donald Trump, please don't do that because, again, this is an individual who is a fascist. She is mad that Trump didn't do as much fascism as he promised he would do. She's mad that he didn't build the wall. She's mad that a month after getting elected, he met with dreamers and said one nice thing about them. I mean, don't you know you're supposed to fucking treat them like animals, Trump? So that's why she's mad about him. So, you know, regardless of why she's mad or how she came to this conclusion, maybe she contrarianed herself into the correct position on accident. I genuinely don't know. All I know is that I hate Ann Coulter. But if she is going to uh, actually accurately criticize these people who are trying to grift off of Donald Trump, I think that's important. Now, to be clear, she is mad at people who are making money off of Donald Trump. She's mad that Trump himself is ripping off his own uh, base. She says that she's enjoying the January 6th hearings only because she likes being proven right about how Trump was a douchebag, even though she worshipped him at first. Uh, but she claims that there was no criminality on Trump's part, which is absurd to me because he tried to stay in office after he lost power, which is 
unconstitutional. But regardless, she says that she does believe that there may be criminality there with regard to his election fraud fund, which didn't actually go to the court fees as the January 6th uh, select committee is is proving. So, look, I will link you to the full article down below if you want to read this. But don't don't give Ann Coulter clicks. I went through the best parts and whatever you do, do not subscribe to her Substack. I feel like that should go without saying she herself is a grifter, but she's accidentally correct here. She arrived at the right conclusion in this instance, but that doesn't mean that she's a good person. She's still a bad person, and we have to make sure that we don't rehabilitate bad actors just because they utter the words Trump bad, right? So in my opinion, this is an interesting story because I like to see infighting on the right. There's a lot of leftist infighting, but you know I think that the right-wing infighting is really important. So whenever there's a story about Dan Crenshaw, an idiot himself, criticizing Marjorie Taylor Greene for being the bigger imbecile, I like that. I love to see it. So uh, my response, as it usually is, is let them fight. And those of us on the left will just grab the popcorn and watch. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.